Welcome to Combo Chain, a JRPG Games Club podcast. In this episode, we're covering the 3DS game, 7th Dragon 3, Code VFD. I'm Paul M. Davis. And I'm Elisa James. Uh, yeah, this is a pretty interesting one. I was surprised when I started doing the research for this episode that it, it seems, as far as like kind of the internet presence, that it was a lot more obscure than I expected it to be. I don't know. What's your backstory with the game? It's funny because I remember seeing like trailers for it, and then I was trying to figure out like what made me decide to get this game. Because there'll be some games that I just get on a whim. <laughs> and I feel like this was one of them. Maybe Dragon. Maybe I saw Dragon in the title. And then I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but but I ended up just getting it on like a weird whim. And just absolutely fell in love with it. Like I was not expecting to love this game as much as I did. I just, I really adore it. It's super cool. I think that... It was on my radar for a couple of reasons, namely that Reiko Kodama was involved in it. And oh, true. She is the, pa- the patron saint of uh, Combo Chain. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. And I was just really intrigued with the whole premise and sort of the fantasy, but meets a really high sci fi element. Yeah. And I'd also seen some previews at the time that I think they were only involved with the localization, but that Atlas had a hand in it. And at the time, I was just mainlining 3DS JRPGs. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. (laughs) Especially if there was an Atlas uh, association. Yeah, yeah. I think this is like a day one purchase for me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I think that's probably what uh, factored in it, too, for me. Like you said, big 3DS, JRPG night. If it was Atlas, I also loved it. Just I played so many of their games on the DS era, too, so I was kind of, like, carried over. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I was really curious to see, like, what Reiko Kodama had come up with, because, like, for a long time, Sega had her on the back burner, and she wasn't really involved in developing that many high profile titles so yeah, yeah I, was, I was pretty excited about it for that reason that is true yeah but yeah yeah and i am also a big fan of the game and it's interesting yeah going into why don't we go into the backstory because i think that when you find out who was involved in the development of this game it really reveals why i think both of us like it as much as we've given our given our take yeah Yeah, the game was released for the 3ds in japan in october 2015 and in the u.s in july 2016 didn't come to the uk until december and uh, despite being titled seventh dragon 3 the game was actually the fourth in the series 
but it was the first one to be uh, released in the West. The first game was released for the DS in Japan in 2009, while the second game, Seventh Dragon 2020, was a PSP release in 2011. There was also a uh, follow-up also for the PSP called uh, Seventh Dragon 2020-2 that came out in uh, 2013. And uh, yeah, basically all three of the non-localized games followed like this ongoing fantasy sci-fi continuity that was set across various time periods in which Seven Dragons, hence the title, threatened all of humanity. And the first game took place in the high fantasy world of Eden, while uh, the following two take place in kind of a near future post-apocalyptic Tokyo where the dragons have invaded and ravaged the city. So while uh, Seventh Dragon 3 follows up on the continuity of the original games, it's also designed to work as a standalone title that's accessible to new players. Uh, A lot of the uh, series lore is relegated to brief references for series diehards in, in the East and for the few in the West who you know, play the earlier games through fan translations. Mm-hmm. Though later in the game, from what I could tell about the stories of the original games, it, it definitely ties in more directly. Though that a lot of the references and the conclusion and the significance of that might be like lost on uh, Western players. Yeah. Interestingly, and I think you can really see the handprints of these two people in the game. The series was basically conceived of and co-created by Kazuya Ninao, who was a producer of the Etrian Odyssey series, which which really explains many of its mechanics with these foe, these like FOE like high level monsters that are lurking in the dungeons that you need to avoid. Mm-hmm. And its approach to player-created characters with a really heavy focus on the job systems of the various uh, characters. Yeah, both of those elements are very Etrianatic. Yeah. And then the other co-creator and lead, lead of the series was, as I said, uh, Combo Chain, <laughs> the creator of Fantasy Star, who's also uh, revered for her work on uh, Skies of Arcadia. It plays very little like the Fantasy Star games, but the mix of high fantasy tropes with the like deep sci-fi elements definitely shares a lot with Kodama's kind of signature series. I think that you can also so see that in the fact that it's a lot more story based than than the Etrian Odyssey games. Even though a lot of the characters are player created, you can you can you can see a lot of Kadama's fingerprints on how the uh, story is told. Yeah, and especially in this game because Ninao had left the series prior and Kadama served as the prior as the primary lead on it. So yeah, manga artist Shiro Mima handled character design for the game as uh, they had for the previous titles in the series. And I got to say, I don't know if you've seen have you seen the art design for the original DS game which is just super deformed. It's like the chibiest of the <laughs> I I have not but now I'm going to look that up. <laughs> yeah. So they, I think this, this game strikes a good kind of balance between more kind of mature designs with all also, while also being somewhat chibi. And then uh, legendary uh, Sega composer uh, Yuzo Kashiro, 
who's uh, best known for his work on Streets of Rage, the soundtrack. And while the uh, previous titles were developed by the Japanese studio Image Epoch, that company went bankrupt in 2015, forcing Sega to basically do all the development in-house. Oh. This, uh, Incidentally, this probably makes a sequel even more unlikely, since Sega only seems to be the uh, like Sonic and Yakuza company nowadays. Though, it has to be said that this game probably wouldn't have come to the West if it hadn't been for their recent acquisition of Atlas and them seeing Atlas's success making like smaller scale, yeah, profitable JRPGs. And yeah, Atlas was brought in for the localization of the game. And despite Atlas Japan's well-documented <laughs> issues with uh, queer and trans representation, mm-hmm. the game received a fair amount of praise for its treatment of uh, queer romance and a, a non-binary main character, again suggesting that the problem lies with Atlas Japan, not the uh, Western localizers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think we've seen that that is absolutely the case. <laughs> I'm just like, certain games, heavy... Uh, uh, emphasis on certain is just going through my mind. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, we've covered this a lot in Megaton Marathon or other podcasts. Exactly. (laughs) Megaton games. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's pretty interesting. It's pretty progressive. I wouldn't say it's perfect, but for one thing, the assistant of the team's boss, uh, Julieta, is uh, non-binary, which is handled in a remarkably respectful way for the most part, yeah. you know, outside of a few moments that make unnecessary jokes about their gender identity. Party animal uh, or party members can also uh, romance one another and most other major characters, regardless of gender. And yeah, the whole dating mechanic is pretty interesting. Uh, a lot of the best perks require that your characters romance others, even though you can play the whole game without even engaging with the dating sim aspect. And <laughs> it's actually really clear that the characters are having sexual relationships. Yeah. <laughs> uh, despite... <laughs> <laughs> Even though it doesn't go into a rogue material, it's heavily implied. But yeah, about like kind of the uh, queer representation, I came across a pretty cool essay by Tia Kala, who writing about the game says, quote, representation isn't just about having a queer uh person of color, neuro, atypical or disabled main character floating around in the background. It's about the narrative normalizing that marginalized aspect and giving agency to that character. I still had control over the game. I could decide where to go and when and who to romance. The part of me that was so very often invisible in games got handed the keys and got to go wild. And you don't realize how important those keys are until you finally get to hold them. Seventh Dragon 3 is a typical JRPG about relationships between people, hope versus despair, making amends for the past, changing the future, and queer people. And I thought that just really summed it up with the game's treatment outside of a few bad jokes. It doesn't really make uh, really a huge deal out of the queer characters. And it gives you the ability to fully romance. Exactly. Like most characters, regardless of gender. Yeah, without like any know, sort of limitations to. on it or like them trying to make it unequal if you had 
uh, male and female versus any other types of relationships. It's just like you said, like what you said and what was said here in this article, it's all normalized. Because I think that's what kind of shocked me the most with this game with like, when I realized that the main character, because at any point in the game, you can change their appearance. So the game just refers to them with, I believe they, them pronouns, right? Like they don't actually gender the the pronouns. I don't think at any point in the game, they use their name, of course. I was like, yeah, oh, yeah. wow. Like that's really cool. So this game doesn't attach anything to your gender. It's just like, I was, it was such a kind of big moment. That and Julieta, like, that was another one I was shocked with. I was so blown away by not only his gender identity, but just the fact that their romance was treated so normally. And out, like, like when they were romanced by this uh, male character, I believe it was one of the other um, soldiers or whatnot, workers in, in the game. Mm-hmm. And I was just so shocked. I was like, oh my gosh, is this really being treated like a regular romance? I couldn't believe it. I, it was amazing, you know? So yeah, I think I think like was said, it's that what really matters is the agency about it, the agency and the normalization. And this game really does get both of them. And the fact that this game came out quite a while ago and it's we were able to get that, it's pretty like really cool. <laughs> It's really cool. And it's such an improvement on even things like, say, like in Fire Emblem, where it's, you got to read a fact to figure out like how to, like, <laughs> how to get the like queer romances. True, yeah. <laughs> whatnot, which is also a step up on you get typically in a lot of Atlas games. Exactly. <laughs> uh, it's interesting. I did come across... A piece of trivia that in the original conception of Lutz, which is like the mage character in the Fantasy Star games, Lutz was originally intended to be non-binary also. Oh. Which is, so it makes me wonder if Reiko Kodama had a role in ensuring that this had a more kind of progressive approach. Yeah. That's just so incredible. Yeah, yeah. And that was back in the 80s. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, unfortunately, the game did okay in uh, Japan. Really was not very successful in the West. And even though Ninao has expressed an interest in continuing the series, at this point, it seems pretty unlikely, considering that like I said earlier, if Sega is like the Sonic and Yakuza machine nowadays. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Plus whatever IPs they can like ring out of Atlas. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it, it is a shame it didn't do but so well. That's it. Yeah. But what's that? I said it's a shame it didn't do so well. I feel like it just wasn't promoted very well unfortunately because like i said i mm-hmm. found it by chance so let's imagine if i just didn't yeah you know though I, there's a lot of i feel like there's a lot of 3ds gate uh, jrpgs that were even more obscure i feel like you got maybe it's just because of reading the game press there was a lot there's a fair amount of coverage in the game press but yeah it probably wasn't promoted as well as it could 
have been as we'll get to when we get to the story it does wrap things up in a pretty satisfying way see a sequel may not be necessary and who knows in 20 years it seems every abandoned sega franchise is now being put out being like remastered or getting a sequel by a third-party indie studio (laughs) that is true so maybe yeah that'd be amazing (laughs) if we could see a sequel to this game through that yeah, <laughs> but yeah, maybe 20 years from now. Exactly. Like we're getting <laughs> Got it. Now with the Streets of Rage and Wonder Boy and Alex Kidd. That's <laughs> true. And remakes and whatnot. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, should we move on to the mechanics? Yep. So the first part of that is the combat. To the most part, exploration and combat is similar to most turn-based dungeon crawler JRPGs. The dungeons are top-down affairs with random battles, though there are visible high-level enemies your party needs to avoid, not only F and Odyssey. There are a number of unique elements to the battles, however, some of which require you to to be strategic about the composition of your party in a given dungeon. Uh, These include exhaust mode. As you deal and take damage, your EX guard will slowly fill up. When full, you you can go into exhaust mode for one turn. While in exhaust mode, you have boosted attack and healing effects and can act instantly. The guard will be completely depleted after usage, and you'll start filling it up again. It also fills up quicker if you face stronger enemies. Uh, Later in the game, you get access to specific EX skills, though you still need to activate exhaust mode first to be able to use them. EX skills are very powerful, capable of one-shotting a boss or severely damaging it with the proper buffs and debuffs. Then you have the backup turn and support skills. Uh, Backup turn will allow your second backup party to assist your main team in battle in terms of providing all party buffs and healing that will last for the entire turn. You have buddy skills. This skill will allow you to select one of your rear team members and have them attack the target breaking its barrier, and also inflicting a debuff that will last a turn. Uh, Then you have the unison attack. Similar to an all-out attack in Persona, this ultimate attack will allow you to unleash a devastating attack with the help of all nine members of your party. To trigger this, all of your party members need to have at least two slots of their standby gall filled. So, then we have the character classes. Samurai, a fence-oriented class with few weaknesses. They can either single or dual wield, either having two forms. Sheath, which gives access to powerful skills against a single target. And Unsheath, which can deal with multiple enemies. 
uh, God Hand, similar to the Monk class in other games, which can deal solid damage while also having healing and support skills. One unique factor is that they inflict a unique status effect to their target called God Death. This status effect doesn't cause any negative impact to the target. However, as the God Hand stacks up... Uh, this effect on a target, more attacks become available to the player. Agent has the unique skill to hack enemies. Hacks can include forcing enemies to attack each other and damage the enemy and recover the SP of all party members. Later on, more hacking options can be learned, like dealing high damage to all enemies while also lowering all stats of the surviving enemies or putting them all to sleep. We have a duelist that has access to element elemental cards, fire, ice, and lightning. They start the battle with two random cards by default, and each turn they can draw one random card, which can be upgraded to four cards. She, they also have access to skills that will allow them to draw one to three specific cards. The duelist has four types of cards to, to play during a battle. Summon, trap, field, and search. Summon is a direct attack skill by summoning an elemental creature that deals damage to the target with a chance to inflict a corresponding status ailment. A fire, you, you inflict burn. Ice inflicts freeze. And lightning inflicts paralysis. So then we have Rune Knight, which has the highest defense in out of all the classes in the game. Uh, makes them perfect for tanking. Similar to Paladin classes in other games, Rune Knights protect their allies with party-wide defensive buffs, healing, and status ailment cures. They have strong defensive skills that can block attacks or allow them to survive a fatal blow. They can also trigger more physical damage when having low HP. The Fortuner, the primary support class in the game, boosts the highest speed, but at the cost of having low defense and HP. They have a wide range of support skills, including health and mana recovery, damage mitigation, status ailment recovery, and more, though these benefits usually accrue over multiple turns. The Banish has the highest attack rating of all the classes in the game and uses an unusual weapon that's a cross between a spear and a cannon. They have a good selection of powerful attacks uh, that can target all enemies per use. A unique thing about Banishers is that they rely on time-delayed bombs to use a majority of their skills. And then finally, we have Mage, your typical dedicated magic-based attacker. Mages have a great selection of elemental attacks and support skills. Mages have access to three elemental attacks, Fire, Ice, and Lightning, which has those corresponding status elements as well that we covered, Fire on Burn, Ice with freeze and lightning and paralysis. The facilities, the Nodens Enterprises is your main headquarters and where you'll spend your time when you're not time traveling and fighting dragons. Several full voids will be available at the start of the game, though you'll be able to construct more facilities later on. These new facilities and upgrades are determined by story uh, progression, though it's still up to the player to request that these facilities are built. <laughs> Uh, then we talked about this earlier, but we have the dating aspect of this game. So you initiate relationships in the Sky Lounge Bar once it's been constructed. At first, you can only date your party members. However, as you complete quests and proceed with the story, you'll be able to date other prominent characters in the game. Dating is the only way to gain access to some of the most powerful weapons for each class. For each character, you have to date them at least three times. For the third date, they'll usually invite your first team's leader to their room, uh, your dorm, 
or a private location that's important to them. During or after this date, you'll receive the weapon reward. You can continue to date the character after that, but there's very little plot development afterwards. Yeah, it's funny because, like, as great as the, the treatment of the, the dating mechanic is in certain ways, it's still ultimately, oh, here's your, like, mechanical reward. For yeah, pretty much. <laughs> at the minor quibble. Exactly. Yeah, let's move on to the story. Even though your party primarily consists of uh, player-created characters, there's a number of notable support characters throughout the game, plus the game's like main protagonist. There's Yaiba, which is who's the main heroine, who serves as the primary dual-blade samurai. They begin the game uh, by entering Nodens to play the virtual reality game Seven Encounts. Their skills are noticed by Julieta and Ali, and they're soon recruited. Then there's Mio, who's uh, Yaiba's sidekick. She meets uh, Yaiba and Nodens after uh, being unable to enter without a ticket and Yaiba helps her get in. She's recruited as Yaiba's navigator despite her great fear of the dragons. Um, it's later found out that Mio is dying of dragon sickness. And there's Ali, who's the CEO of Noden Enterprises. And uh, she comes off uh, pretty much kind of overly cheerful and friendly and uh, there's a reason for that. Yeah. <laughs> we will find because... <laughs> she has some secrets. There's uh, Julieta, as we spoke, spoke about earlier. They're coded basically as non-binary. They're uh, second in command at Nodens and uh, help develop Nodens technology, including the uh, VR game Seventh Encounter and the Time Machine. Julieta used to be a colleague of uh, the JSDF, which is like the military, the Japanese military unit that is competing with Nodens, but uh, is then recruited by uh, Ali uh, to work at Nodens. There's uh, Nagamimi, who's the game's mascot character. A uh, very cool one, though. Yes. Uh, very foul-mouthed and ill-tempered, stuffed uh, rabbit-like creature who also acts as the party's navigator. Then there's a bunch of different NPCs, but I think the one that stands out the most is uh, Chika. She's in charge of the construction and uh, assigning quests for your Unit 13. And uh, she also becomes a source of advice and support and potentially a dating partner. And then ultimately in the uh, ISDF camp, you have Yuma, who's a man-made weapon created by the government basically to kill dragons. His intentions are pretty unclear and he has a pretty antagonistic relationship with Nodens. So basically, You've got like the government trying to figure out their solution to the to the dragon problem, and you've got Nodens trying to figure out their solution, and they're both up to shady shit. But oh yeah, <laughs> antagonistic to one another. But yeah, the uh, story takes place in the year twenty one hundred, which is eighty years after the end of the previous game, where basically the defeat of the fifth true dragon. Fomalhaut had led to a brief era of peace. During this time, the private corporation Nodens has developed a virtual reality game, Seventh Encount, which is presented as an amusement device, but is actually a training simulation to prepare for the dragon's return. The world's still suffering from the effects of the attack decades before in the form of an incurable disease called dragon sickness, 
caused by uh, dragon's bane, which are toxic flowers that bloomed after the presence of the dragons. Basically, the game begins with the protagonist and the party that you've created clearing the first few levels of the simulations. And then they go outside of the Nodens headquarters and find out that the dragon attacks have resumed. And the only way to truly defeat all the dragons is to complete what's called the Dragon Chronicle, which is a collection of samples of all the true dragons, including those in the past and the future. And that will contain information on how to finally defeat the seventh. So you're basically going through, going on a fetched quest through time to uh, kill all the true dragons, get their samples, and figure out how to fight this ultimate threat. Which is the seventh true dragon, codenamed VFD, which poses as the greatest threat to humanity yet, and possibly to reality itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in the beginning they went so far as to say that if this dragon awakens, basically it's the end of existence. So I was like, oh, that's pretty serious. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, I sure hope we don't have to fight that dragon. Yeah. You play as a part of uh, Noden's Unit 13 to lead this task force, although you also work with the ISDF military group, who has been further experimenting with fusing dragon DNA with humans. Rather than focusing on Tokyo, as with the 2020 games, most of the Seventh Dragon 3 is spent traveling to two time periods to find the dragon specimens. The dragon slayers of Unit 13 have to travel to different timelines to battle the true dragons, assist the locals who live in fear of the dragons and the sickness, and ultimately collect the samples for the Dragon Chronicle. Their first time travel trip is to the distant past, where they explore the lost cities of Atlantis and attempt to save its inhabitants, the cat-eared Luciers. In Atlantis, you find that the denizens have largely given in to their fate. While hunting the three dragons that terrorize the time period, you assist the residents through side quests before meeting Queen Ulania. Meanwhile, you explore multiple dungeons within Atlantis to defeat the dragons, gather the specimens, and battle the dragon's bane. During this time, you travel between Atlantis and 2100, developing the facility, gaining new skills, and saving Atlanteans, as well as Queen Ulania, by migrating them into the game's present day. Once the dragons of the Atlantean time period have been defeated, you need to go 5,000 years into the future to the world of Eden, where the original game took place. Though you arrive a bit after the time period of the original seventh dragon, you're looking to take down the sixth true dragon, Hayes. After checking on the bedridden and increasingly sickly Mio in 2100, your team arrives in the Kazan Republic in the world of Eden, a residential district that's fallen to ruin due to the dragon's influence. After ascending the many floors of the Tower of Ladian uh, ruins, you battle the fossil dragon Mayhem. Emil, a resident of the Kazan Republic whose sister Itel is missing in the ruins, uh, joins you. Itel is found by the team, but the party soon discovers that there will be a blue dragon's bane outbreak in the city. The team returns to 2100 to request construction of an evacuation ward for the residents of the Kazan Republic, bringing the sick Emil back with them for treatment. 
Following this, they returned to the Ladian ruins, continuing to scale the seemingly endless tower. Upon reaching the top, the party faces the sixth dragon, Haze, though following their defeat of it, Emil, who has been overtaken by and driven mad by her dragon blood, steals the dragon slayer and injures Unit 13 and the others. Yeah, you then wake up in uh, Noden's medical bay with Mio by your side. And shortly after healing up, you're summoned by Nagamimi to the war room. You head there and you learn that your next mission is to hunt the fourth true dragon, Hypnos, in the scholar city of Proloma, which is also which is another part of the world of Eden. And Proloma is a large area comprised of several small districts. It's been overtaken by like giant vines and tree branches, which makes navigation and uh, the ability to locate survivors really challenging. I'm a pain in the ass. I found yeah. This, this portion of the game irritating. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, and this is another reason why. Uh, in Proloma, the party is forced to split into three teams to make sure each of them has the best equipment and all the skills uh, that they can uh, level up and develop. And then the narrative kind of splits into uh, three separate episodes in which the teams contend with the challenges of uh, different separate of separate parts of the city ruins. And all three episodes conclude with battles against high dragons that have been stalking the area. Once the whole party reconvenes, having defeated the respective high dragons and further developed their skills, their objective is to hunt the fourth true dragon, Hypnos. She's located in the dra- Hall of the Dragon Slayer, which is north of the uh, district of Perloma. Hypnos is like a really difficult battle. It's like heavy on status ailments, and she's capable of regeneration. And it really requires that you've uh, not only not only learned how buffs and debuffs work in the game, but also how to use all the party member skills to support one one another, or you just won't survive the battle, which is what the game is like setting you up to be able to do by yeah. splitting your party off into three teams. Once Hypnos is defeated, the team has now got the fourth and sixth true dragon specimens. They learn that the blue dragon's bane has been uh, cleared from Eden. So that's good for the people who haven't been evacuated. And they, your team basically returns to uh, 2100 and rests up. Yaiba goes to the terrace with Yuma for a kind of suspicious conversation with a lot of foreshadowing in which Yuma refers to dragons as the pinnacle of evolution. And he starts to tip his hand that there's uh, ulterior motives in uh, Noden's and the ISDF's uh, research and diffusing dragon and human DNA. After this, Yaiba goes and speaks to the doctor who tells her that Mio's condition has worsened but that she's best off continuing her job as the navigator for the team as a way to just kind of keep her occupied and give her hope. And then you're pretty much given your last opportunity to uh, complete any side quests, travel to various locations, to look for more survi- to look for more survivors, or even focus on your dating relationships. Because after this, the story takes a major twist. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, so after this, you meet Allie on the terrace, who reveals that she may have nefarious motives and demands that Unit 13 prove itself by battling the Do- Nodens and C- NPCs Rika and the best administrator of waifu Chica. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I-, I was a big Chica fan. <laughs> I agreed. <laughs> She's great. <laughs> the-, the duo proved to be a tough battle, having the ability to damage the entire party at once, buff one another, and blind the entire party. Once you beat them, Allie tells the party to meet her in Chidori Gafuchi Park once they've healed and revived their deceased members. Before confronting Allie, the team decides to head to Murakumo HQ to find out exactly what's been going on with the ISDF. To get there, the party has to try a traverse a dungeon within the Parliament Building to get to the military center. As they get close to Marakumo HQ, they get an urgent message from Mio that there's a massive dragon signal ahead and that the source of the signal is Yuma. Once arriving, the party faces off with the transformed Yuma, who is a pain in the ass to fight because he fully heals himself yes. after each turn. Ah, oh, yeah, that was the worst. <laughs> <laughs> you have to heavily rely on buffs and EX skills best used consecutively to cha- to take him down. The team takes an underground passage to get to uh, Chidori Gafuchi Park, where Ali reveals her true identity. She explains uh, that her ultimate goal is to be killed by Unit 13 to give birth to the seventh true dragon, VFD. She kills the side characters that have joined the party throughout the game, such as the Atlantean Queen Ulania, and spreads the dragon sickness disease across the earth, killing all living organisms except Unit 13, Mio, Julieta, and Dr. Nagumo. She transforms into the second true dragon, N.D., who is the mother of all dragons. And this isn't her first rodeo. She appears as a secret boss in the first game in the series, and it's heavily implied that she is the primary antagonist of the entire series.
Yeah, so after a fierce battle with the party, Allie reveals that her true name is Nodens, and she rejoices that her demise is going to bring upon the completion of Code VFD and the birth of the seventh true dragon. She disappears in the dragon's bane petals, and uh, meanwhile, you get a side cut over to the Nodens facility where uh, Julieta reveals that the new Dragon Chronicle has been completed. Your party then wakes up in a space where the past, present, and future no longer exists. And there's only one remaining ally that you can count on, Nagamimi. Nagamimi opens a portal that brings you to a time when all the other key characters are alive. But it's this just crazy psychedelic metaphysical space called the Grateful Seventh. And so you have to make it down the spiral-shaped dungeon with the uh, Seventh True Dragon being at the base. And uh, Seventh True Dragon not, not only has the power to uh, get rid of humankind, but also destroy the entire universe. So as the party traverses the Grateful Seventh, they have to battle the dragons that they've beaten before. Generally, they're not as difficult as they were in the original fight, but facing a boss rush at the end of an already long JRPG can be frustrating. Meanwhile, the defeated enemies, most notably the first dragon, Eod, pine on one of the game's primary themes, which is that time, space, and humanity are immaterial. And new worlds will be born from the ashes of destroyed ones. Eod appears recurrently throughout this dungeon, being just an annoying like, <laughs> philosophical dick, uh, talking shit about humanity and human relationships and uh, the glory of rebirth through uh, destruction. So at last, uh, when the party reaches the true seventh dragon, you're surprised to find that it's not too difficult in its first uh, iteration. This is a JRPG, so it uh, transforms into a, into a second form. This one isn't that difficult either if you're closely managing buffs. <laughs> and then it's third final form, which is a real bastard. <laughs> <laughs> That's how they always get you. You basically have to just chip away at the final form using all of the skills and the party skills that you've developed to that point. And you need to get its HP down to 50%. But Yaiba and the party seem incapable of fully beating it until they are filled by specters of the key characters they met in the game. And we get a power of friendship scene. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> don't need to make a jingle for that. That gives the party the power to finally defeat the true seventh dragon. But once they take the seventh dragon or VFD down, the grateful seventh begins to disintegrate upon itself, and the party's teleported away by uh, Nagamimi. You return to 2100, but it's a new world created by Yaiba's wishes, where the dragons and all of their powers have been wiped from existence. For some reason, Nagamimi is now a cute girl because all mascot characters have to become boring. <laughs> or in the case of Persona, pervy humans at some point. At least it's only at the during the epilogue. <laughs> but, uh, you, know, you have to deal with a uh, cute girl now. Yeah, thank goodness it didn't happen uh, with Koromaru. Thank goodness. Being the one persona, the mascot character that 
just stays a stays a good dog. Exactly. If you're not familiar with Persona Three. You learned that uh, Nodens is now just a plain old video game company, and uh, Ali, uh, Chica, and Rika no longer exist. So then you return to your dormitory, and your photos showing that all the characters that you met and saved in uh, Atlantis and Eden are alive and uh, thriving in their respective times. And so the game ends with a healthy Mio uh, welcoming Yaiba and Unit 13 back to this peaceful and dragon-free world. Aww. <laughs> it's a sweet ending. I really liked it. It is a sweet ending. I made a joke about the power of friendship, but I feel like it really works works in this game. It, it, because mm-hmm. you really do build relationships with with these characters that you're saving and the different NPCs that you come across like in the headquarters and whatnot. And for them to show up and say, we're going to give you the combined power to take down the seventh dragon. Sure. It's an anime cliche, but I don't know. It, it, it works. It does. It works here. It's very narratively fulfilling and it just works. Like you said, it works very well here in this game because you really do feel like you've earned all of that. Like you said, a big part of this game is, whether in the main story, side quest, etc., you're building all these character relationships. You really do bond with all these people. And in that 11th hour, like them coming to your aid and helping you, it just, it feels really great. Like it's just, it, it works mm-hmm. so well with this game. And I really like that a lot. I like a nice, happy ending as long as it's earned. And I think with this game, you definitely earned your happy ending. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And also the fact that you create an alternate reality and everything that can narratively feel like a uh, cheat, but it, it, it doesn't in this game because or it, I, I, I didn't think that it did in this game because for one thing, the game is lampshading that it's about existence and creating new worlds and it's based on time travel as one of the main mechanics and whatnot. So the fact that you are able to create this idealized world for your characters in the end and you can see that the characters in the other time periods that you met along the way are doing well and thriving i don't know it it just feels it feels fitting and it feels satisfying kind of conclusion to the narrative and to like the character relationships that you've built up exactly yeah yeah and also i think because what makes it fitting here is that not only is this a great ending for this particular game but i feel like it really ties in for the whole franchise because each each game is from what i've been seeing has led up to like more and more of these dragons being conquered but never getting to that end game and then with this game here Mm -hmm. we finally get that like all compassing ending that resolves the the last bit of it you actually face the seventh dragon and you put him to rest for good and, and you're able to live happily now so it's just it works really well as like a series finale too which is why i think it's especially satisfying and i imagine so especially for fans who's been playing this series for, since the first game it has to be very satisfying yeah, absolutely. And it's a bummer that we didn't, us players in the West, didn't get 
that complete sense of satisfaction. Yeah. Even though there are fan translations, I played a little bit of the fan translation of Seventh Dragon 2020 you know, maybe a few hours of it just because I was curious and didn't really put a ton of time into it. But yeah, yeah, I think maybe that's the ultimate disservice to the series Mm -hmm. is that this must be an incredibly like satisfying conclusion to people who've played all the games. But I think it does. It's still satisfying and uh, as a standalone game because of the way that a really build those relationships with the characters in other time periods that you're saving and whatnot. There's enough that's clearly established that you don't need to like really need know all the lore and backstory of the previous games. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah. So are there any other, uh, final thoughts you have on the game or um that i know and i'm, I'm just gonna say anyway please play this game like you will not regret it it's so good it's just it's a it's a really fun game it has this really great like almost retro-y like aesthetic to it as well which extends to like the music of the game like the battle themes and everything and it's just it's so enjoyable it has great classes the classes are really unique and and in-depth like how they work like it's really unlike most jrpgs that you'll pick up like it's a very unique experience in that regard i think and it's just it's it's a lot of fun the characters are all great of course too it's just (laughs) <laughs> so let's pick this game up play it you will not regret it <laughs> yeah absolutely if you still have a 3ds that's working i would say download it and, and play it immediately it's funny because i've while i was doing the research and kind of compiling the notes and everything for this episode i've also been messing around with playing a bravely default too and that that game, I'm only a few hours into it, but that game does, I wouldn't say similar things, but it, it does have, have some similarities in the way, say, like the dungeons are laid out and it puts a high priority on like class systems and jobs and how those interact between the characters. But going back and revisiting this game has made Bravely Default 2 feel a little, I don't know, (laughs) a little less uh, interesting to me because there's just some classes in this game that are really unique, like the one that throws bombs and everything and whatnot. Yeah, the the duelist. Yeah, and it just has such a like really compelling story with great character development whereas bravely default unapologetically is just like very rote jrpg narrative (laughs) exactly yeah yeah and one thing i really like about this game too are the the side quests very good side quests like it really feels like they have a great impact uh, on, on on your perspective of the narrative like their characters just explore some cool concepts like one that really stands out to me is this one side quest which starts out pretty benign basically a scientist wants you to track down a sample of a type of fish that existed in an ancient Atlantis 
You go there, you try to look for it. And over the course of the of the side quest, the terms, the conditions start actually changing on it, like what you're searching for. And what happens is you find out that the original fate of the Atlanteans, which was to die that day until, of course, you intervene. But because they died and their corpses were in the ocean, it allowed a particular breed of fish to thrive because they fed on those corpses. So that's the breed that was requested. But because the Atlanteans didn't die that day, that breed never exploded in population and they eventually died off. So in the end, it's actually a completely different species of fish that ends up becoming the dominant one. And then what's funny is that as you realize that time actually starts changing and then the scientists request actually adjust and they forget that they requested the initial fish and they go on to the new one. And I just, I really love that. Like how thoughtful is that to consider even those kind of changes having an impact on ecosystem and species. And I, and of course I'm a big giant nerd. So I was just like, I love that so much. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. When, when it comes to, like, nerd, nerd shit, time travel, like, a really well-handled time travel story is on my, like, top three of... <laughs> like, and it is handled really well in this game. I had not... I didn't do that side quest, personally, but that is really cool and shows a lot of, like, sophistication in the way they, like, plotted out the time travel narrative yeah it's funny though i feel like whenever we get atlanteans in like jrpgs which is surprisingly often though i can't think of another example off the top of my head feels like they're always resigned to their fate that that they're all gonna die (laughs) exactly (laughs) yeah (laughs) Oh, man. But yeah. And then another one, I think we mentioned this earlier, but that really grabbed me was involving Julieta. And this, I'm trying to remember if he was a soldier, but I know he definitely, of course, worked within the company. And he had this big crush on um on Julieta, like wrote, wrote them like uh, a love letter and like, and even came and gave flowers. And then it was, you know, it was so sad because Julieta was, I'm sorry, I'm just not interested. You're really great, though. And you feel bad for the, the poor guy. And then I think what floored me was like, wait, there's no there's no jokes? This isn't treated like as something horrific? Like, it's just normal in this game? Because it was already really sweet. Mm-hmm. And then on top of it, just being so, like, regular in the game, I'm just like, wow, this is so... This is really great. Like, I think that's what kind of helped elevate the the game for me, too, (laughs) with that sort of thing. So it was just that one, like, absolutely blew my mind with how, like, just regular it was. Yeah. Yes. It's that. It's that. Going back to that normalization thing. Yeah. Exactly. I don't know. This is definitely a hidden gem. Definitely. And I would highly recommend it. It is a kind of a grindy dungeon crawler JRPG. I think it's worth it for all the like great aspects that we've talked about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I yeah, totally agree. Yes, please get this game. Everything about it is great. Even even the parts that are frustrating, it's still good. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, and some of those dungeons can get pretty frustrating, but I don't know. It, there's just enough going on that you just like to get you through those parts that are frustrating. And yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, I definitely <laughs> should we should we wrap up here oh, yeah absolutely let's <laughs> or else i'll just talk about this game all day <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah yeah and i probably need to try and take a quick nap before i pick up the kids so <laughs> <laughs> definitely yeah. probably wrap up here but yeah, before we finish, is there anything that you want to plug? I'll plug my usual. Now I work for a website called Gamepur. Uh, so you can find all my work there. My previews, reviews, guides. I've gotten into more guide writing, which is a lot of fun. I've written them, of course, with Dual Shockers previously, but those are much longer. These are uh, shorter, more bite-sized guides, uh, which is a lot of fun. As well as, of course, my news writing. I'm also part of a group called Black Girl Gamers, a bunch of black ladies in the industry so either streamers you know journalists developers or other positions like that and you could support us on the uh, official twitter account which we should we'll have a link to that in the other uh, notes and you could buy mm-hmm. merch from our official store which of course helps support us financially as well check out the streams for our twitch our twitch streamers as well that helps them out a lot whatever support you can give to them is great so that's a big group. In general, too, you can reach me on my own Twitter, which is at AJames347. And you can always feel free to just chat with me about any sort of JRPG because I'm always down with just conversing about anything with that. Nice. <laughs> yep. So those are my things. Nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we'll have links to all that stuff in the uh, show notes. Yeah. Elise and I also uh, co-host a show about the Shimigami Tensei and Persona games called Megaten Marathon mm-hmm. that comes out very occasionally um, <laughs> on a regular basis like this one. Yeah. But yeah, that's worth checking out if you're a fan of those series. Definitely check out our Patreon at Mirror Image Studios. You can, we have launched a third monthly episode of Combo Chain that's exclusive to Patreon subscribers at the $5 level. At the $2 level, you can get episodes a week early. But yeah, yeah, if you want to get that third exclusive episode, uh, $5 level is a good way to go. And this month we did uh, Final Fantasy VIII. Uh, and we really appreciate the support. And it really helps us to cover our costs and, and whatnot. Yeah. And other than that, if you're up for it, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can email us at combochainfm at gmail. We're combochainfm on Twitter. And we're also on Facebook. So, yeah, lots of ways to get in touch. So thanks so much for listening and uh, yeah, we'll be back soon with another episode of combo Shane. Okay. Take care, everybody. Show